This is Prince, the story of 1999, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Warner Records. What do you think about you know, the moment 1999 came out and kind of its lasting impact? Like, what is its legacy? I think it was uh, the biggest crossover for him as far as the type of audiences in um, both the black music world and the so-called white music world. It was about never wanting to be limited. It was about never wanting to be marginalized. By the time we reached 1999, there were a lot of French fans from all walks of life. He became a leader in 1999. He went from a caterpillar to a butterfly in that one purple trench coat. The iconic look of the photos, the album cover, it's all there. It's all a setup for what's to come. To be a band with across-the-board radio and, at that time, MTV success. It went from, you know, being largely unknown in your own hometown to not being able to walk down the street in your own hometown. I mean, literally, it got to that point. fan of Prince's music, I probably don't even need to tell you why we're doing this. There is a huge reissue of 1999 coming out on November 29th. The Super Deluxe Edition includes 35 tracks from Prince's vault, including studio tracks and live recordings from the 1999 tour. This was a huge moment in Prince's life and career. It's kind of crazy to think about now, but 1999 was Prince's fifth album. Even though he'd put out so much music already, it was these songs, these huge hits from 1999 that really introduced him to the mainstream audience that he knew his music deserved. In one album cycle, he broke through all of these barriers in a music industry that was still very segregated to become a global superstar with huge hits on the radio and MTV. In case you haven't listened to it in a minute, all of these songs are on 1999. Andrea Swenson. I'm an author, a radio host, and a music journalist in Minneapolis. 
I spent a lot of my time thinking about Prince. I wrote some of the liner notes for this new reissue. I spent more nights than I can count out at Paisley Park, dancing to Prince's DJ sets, watching him perform from 20 feet away, and meeting with him. I wrote a book about the Minneapolis sound, and I've interviewed countless Prince collaborators, friends, and experts for The Current and on stage at Paisley Park's annual celebrations. Coming up on Prince, the story of 1999, we're going to nerd out about this new, huge, super deluxe edition. You're going to hear stories from so many different people, and we're going to listen to these vault tracks, some of them for the very first time. I cannot wait. Actually, I literally can't wait. Let's put on one right now. This is Purple Music, a song that Prince wrote back in 1982 and kept locked in his vault for over three decades. He just started playing it live on his final piano and a microphone tour in 2016. I kind of see this as the soundtrack to this era of Prince's life when he was suddenly writing songs at a feverish pace for his own album, for his funk side project, The Time, and for his new all-woman trio, Vanity Six. tracks in the Super Deluxe Edition of 1999 were recorded in November of 1981, and we're going to listen to some of those in just a few moments. But before we get there, I think it's important to understand exactly where Prince's head was at when he was recording these unreleased sketches of songs. And though it's impossible to know what Prince himself was thinking and feeling, and I would never claim to know these things, at this exact moment in history in the fall of 1981, they actually weren't going that great. The story of 1999 begins with one of the most legendary concert debacles in rock and roll history, when Prince and his band got the chance to open for the Rolling Stones at the Los Angeles Coliseum. As Prince's bandmates have told me, opening up for the Stones was going to be Prince's biggest gig to date, and it was supposed to have been the opportunity of a lifetime. Here's Prince's first guitar player, Des Dickerson. At that time, you know, we were playing what folks then called the Shetland Circuit. So we're playing arenas, but, you know, we're playing to, like, stone-solid African-American audiences. Prince was still relatively new to touring in 81. He'd only done a couple of short tours, including one opening for Rick James, and his album Dirty Mind was getting a lot of buzz in the music world. When the Dirty Mind tour hit the Roxy in New York, it was attended by all of the biggest names in the music scene, including Mick Jagger. The show went so well, it ended up inspiring a track on 1999, All the Critics Love You in New York, as Prince's first drummer, Bobby Z. Rivkin, told me. People in New York loved it, and the critics loved it. And we played the Ritz, and it was monumental. Everybody was at that show in New York. Warhol and Bowie and the Kiss guys were there back then. It was big-time stuff. An up-and-comer was pulling the stars in. The energy at that time was different than it ever was at any time going forward because there's something about, you know, people who uh, are kids. You don't think of yourselves as kids at the time who are doing what they, in, in their sort of, you know, constructive hubris, think that they were always meant to do. But you have this, like, forward momentum and you're just kind of hurtling forward through, you know, the, the candy store. And there was just something about those days that was it was it was more adventurous. It was it was an amazing time. 
The Dirty Mind Tour was raw, raunchy, and sexually liberated. Prince typically performed in leg warmers, a trench coat, and a pair of bikini briefs. The way that the whole bikini underwear thing started was one of those Dennis the Menace pushback things. It was, Prince, you, you can't go on stage without underwear like that. You gotta wear underwear. Okay, then I'll come out just wearing underwear. The centerpiece of each show was a drawn-out jam on the Dirty Mind track, Head, which often ended with Prince rolling around on stage and grinding his hips in the air. This is a live version of Head captured in Detroit in 1982, which is included in the 1999 reissue. to getting him in front of Mick Jagger, the Dirty Mind Tour had brought Prince back home to Minneapolis to play on hallowed ground, the stage at the downtown rock club Sam's, which would soon be rebranded as First Avenue and earn a starring role in Purple Rain. With that March 9, 1981 show at Sam's, Prince had planted a flag in the white hipster rock scene of his hometown and earned the adoration of tastemakers who'd previously ignored him in favor of punk and new wave bands like The Replacements, Husker Du, and The Suburbs. As he prepared for his big gig opening for the Rolling Stones with another warm-up show at Sam's, there was no reason not to believe that he was about to win over 94,000 classic rock fans. Hi, everybody. This is Matt Fink, a.k.a. Dr. Fink from Prince and the Revolution. Just having the opportunity to open for the Stones, being youngsters from the Midwest who looked up to all those guys, was really a dream come true. A fantasy fulfilled, as you might think. There was a huge stairway down, you know, red carpet back to the Stones village and walked down it all excited. You see these pictures that mm -hmm. we're all excited to play. It's a big moment. Band from Minneapolis, right? I mean, it's like growing up in St. Louis Park and south and north Minneapolis. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge moment. And, um, you know, it ends in utter shambles and defeat. What was interesting is I thought that the Rolling Stones had more of a 60s counterculture kind of audience that would be more peaceful than this. So I was a bit surprised by that. So it kind of took on that Hell's Angels edge since they, they allowed the Hell's Angels to still be their security force, and even at that time. So you had a mixed race group of people up there, mixed gender. Uh, Prince was dressed in his trench coat and his thigh-high stockings and high-heeled boots and you know, the, just looking radical compared to what they're used to. 
Although Mick Jagger used to come out in kind of sexy clothing at times. But, but he was white. white. But he was white, yeah. So, you, <laughs> so you, had the, you had the three black front guys and the, the, the you know, anyway, you, you get it. So, yeah. yeah, it was disappointing. That first show was Friday, October 9th, 1981. There were four bands on the bill, so Prince and his band took the stage at about 2 p.m. ahead of George Thorogood, the Jay Giles Band, and the Stones. The Friday show actually wasn't that bad. The first two songs, I can still hear that sound, that sound of that many people. It was, like, amazing. The band launched into a guitar scorcher, Bambi and followed it up with a hard-driving rock version of When You Were Mine, clearly altering their set list to try to appeal to Stones fans. But when they were midway through their third song, Jack You Off, the crowd started to turn. People were flipping us the bird, and they were booing, and they were throwing food and bottles and cans and crumpled up uh, paper cups. And, you know, we, we were all nearly pelted with stuff. I know I got pelted, actually, in, the, in my head with one of those crumpled up paper cups. It did sting. You know, when you start out watching TV, your favorite musicians, and you imitate them, and you're a little kid, you get the drum set and get the guitar. You never, ever really ever think that anyone will be angry like booing at a athletic event. But then you add objects, projectiles on top of that. And it just, it really, it shook me to the point where I was literally shaking. And we couldn't really end the set. I've never seen him more, you know, petrified and sad. All of us. Um, he took off right away. Prince left the stage during Uptown, leaving his bandmates to finish the song alone. By the time the rest of the players made it back to the dressing room, Prince was gone. He'd not only left the venue, he was on his way to the airport to fly home to Minneapolis. And I think the problem was, this was a time when disco was hated in rock. Robert Hilburn, the legendary L.A. Times music critic. It was anybody who was doing that kind of music that was black, that was the problem. I mean, with those fans that got upset. They didn't want their stations to start playing disco and funk and stuff. It was a kind of a war. Remember there was a thing in Chicago where they uh, broke disco records, some rock station. They set them on fire or something. Right. It was a, so I think he got caught up in that. Did you hear about people saying either racist or homophobic things when they were yelling at Prince? No, 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 no. They were just booing him. I think they thought he was an outsider trying to get into the rock world. The next day, Prince's phone started ringing off the hook. He took calls from the legendary concert promoter, Bill Graham, who'd chastised the audience for their behavior after Prince's set. And Mick Jagger, who tried to convince Prince to return for the second show on Sunday night. You know, Mick Jagger, of course, appreciated Prince. He personally right. asked us to come and do that show. But, um, you know, and he begged Prince to come back and do the second show, in spite of you know, the first one being as disappointing as it was. It was Des Dickerson who ultimately convinced Prince to return. Frankly, I don't know what Mick said to try to get him back. But, you know, bless his heart, as we say in the South, it didn't work. <laughs> so I just literally appealed to his manhood. I said, we cannot let them do us like this. We can't let people run us out of town, because if we do it now, we're going to be running forever. So you got to come back. We got to do this. And, and we just have to make our stand. And that is what, you know, that was what clicked. 
the obligation to do the second show was tough. And obligations, as we know for Prince, were difficult when he's forced. And this time he was forced, but whatever that moment was before the second show was like dead man walking. You knew that it wasn't going to be better. What you didn't expect was the glee that people had read about the first show, and now they were prepared to throw it right off the get-go. So, I mean, now you're you're out there and you're exposed in a way that, that was just um, chilling. The Sunday show was Game of Thrones. I mean, the Sunday show was like, whoo, man, winter was coming. Look at all the trash. First thing I saw Sunday when we stepped on stage was this dot in in the distance, and as it got closer, that that's a like a Ziploc bag with some sort of those are chicken parts. And as they got real close, it was like they're like gray, like somebody took the time to put them in the sun, and you know it was like okay, it was like yeah, this is going to be an interesting afternoon. A Ziploc bag full of rotting chicken, rotting parts. chicken parts. Ugh. And then I turned and looked just in time to see Mark Round's base with a gallon of orange juice, like, exploding on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was war, but you, you just had to kind of survive. He was protected by God. Uh, his head ducked in an empty Jack Daniels bottle, just missed his head by about a quarter of an inch and crashed against the drum riser right in front of me. I remember Lisa looking at Lisa. There was stuff crashing. Bobby was like, I'm going to use my symbols for shields. <laughs> And I was like, I'm right out in the open, help. And then I just saw Prince go running by me <laughs> on my left-hand side. And he just ran all the way up the stairs. And we all looked at each other like, what do we do? You know, we'll just finish the song. And then we ran up the stairs, too. I think it, it also gave Prince a, a new kind of courage. Because there, there was, you know a sea of people, as far as the eye could see, literally in front of him, you know, as if those are the people he was going to have to address, you know, to be to be the great artist that he wanted to be. You know, this was a battle that was going to have to be won, or at least faced, faced down, you know. That's Lisa Coleman, Prince's longtime keyboard player. It was vicious, and obviously we're still talking about this day. It's a pivotal moment, but in talking to Bill and and Charlie Watts, you know, Wyman and Watts, and I think of what Charlie Watts said, that, you know, shake it off, kid. You know, we had it too. And you think of the Beatles in Hamburg, you know, how that must have been. Everybody's got a beginning. Now you can go on TV and be instantly famous. To earn it the way Prince did it, brick by brick, moment by moment, this, this is a key moment of growth, strength, knowledge, defeat that you have to have in this story to relish the victory later.
next day, as the booing heard round the world made its way into every newspaper and radio show, Prince holed up in his favorite studio, Sunset Sound, with his new favorite engineer, Peggy McCreary. His managers came running in the studio the next morning and said, it was a really bad night. Just be prepared. He's going to be in a bad mood. And um, he was booed off the stage, and they threw things at him at the Stones concert. And I went, oh, my God. But he wasn't bad. I mean, he didn't talk about it. It was just one of those days where he was quiet. From the outside, Prince appeared to retreat from public view. He stopped doing interviews. He vowed never to open for another act again, and he stuck to that promise for the rest of his career. And he spent hours alone in the studio, dreaming up the songs and projects that would emerge over the course of the next year. As his management pressed him to do more publicity, his self-imposed isolation had an intriguing side effect. Prince became a mystery. And that mystery built into a mythology, and it made every move of his more entrancing to a public who was suddenly hungry for more. As he shielded himself from public scrutiny, Prince's creative energy whirled ever more rapidly. He'd always had a strong work ethic, but over the course of the next year, he wrote songs, performed, rehearsed, and refined like he was preparing for battle. His weapons of choice were his new Lin LM1 drum machine, which he'd just started composing songs on earlier that year, and an arsenal of cutting-edge synthesizers. which Prince recorded in his home studio in Minnesota just weeks after the Rolling Stones show. It was discovered in his vault nestled side-by-side side with the original version of his B-side Irresistible Bitch. Hi, this is Michael Howe. I am the chief archivist for the Prince estate, so I am the vault keeper. Michael Howe told me about the importance of these two tracks, which are the earliest to be included in the super deluxe edition of the 1999 reissue. Those were songs that were recorded kind of individually, but then sequenced together on a cassette as one seamless kind of piece. So I think Prince envisioned the songs to be in that exact order, basically with no segue, no, no delineation between the two, even though they're technically two distinct songs. So this was one of the cases where we actually had to mix uh, from the two inches to duplicate what was on the cassette, because the only rough mix was a kind of a beaten up cassette with a lot of dropouts and a lot of low integrity sonically. So we put the two inch up on, you know, on the grid and just mixed it exactly to the specification that's on the rough mix. 
effects. So basically you're hearing what, what is on the cassette, but with the sonic integrity of something that came off of the master tape. Prince wouldn't speak publicly about his experience at the L.A. Coliseum for over a year. But when Robert Hilburn of the L.A. Times asked him about it in the fall of 1982, he said, the reason I left was because I didn't want to play anymore. He said he thought most of the crowd was okay, but he was frustrated because there was some guy near the front of the stage that kept yelling and yelling. And Prince said, I got so mad, I wanted to fight that guy. I was really angry. I think he was hurt. Bill Graham said when he talked to him, he could see he was hurt. He was almost shaking. In the version of Irresistible Bitch that was recorded after those Stone shows, Prince taps into a ragged, urgent new vocal delivery that stands apart from the rest of his entire body of work, save for maybe the Black Album. He sounds pissed. All my partners ask me why I take so much abuse. Why am I so fake, honey? Why are you so loose? What are you hearing in Prince's voice on Irresistible Bitch? I'm just fascinated by that. I think that's a Jamie Starr moment for sure. I mean, it's kind of an alter ego and... Um, I think it allowed him to, to exercise a creative muscle that might have been, you know, a little more difficult to do had he been singing kind of straight, you know, in a straight Prince voice. The fierce resolve we're hearing on this track would propel Prince through the next year of his career. In 1982, he would release three projects, including LPs from The Time and Vanity Six under his new producer pseudonym, Jamie Starr, and his own double album, 1999. Prince set out to make a record and an army of bands that no one could deny, that would make him a superstar on his own terms, that would pioneer a Minneapolis sound and would shape the sound of a decade. When he emerged from his year of intense, prolific creation, he would have the sound of the future, the sound of 1999. Coming up next, we'll dive deep into Prince's time in the studio in the winter of 1981 and 82 as he churned through volumes of material on his way to creating 1999. You'll hear more of these tracks from the super deluxe edition of 1999, including Colleen, the long-lost instrumental that Prince named after his engineer, Peggy Colleen McCreary. I mean, we cut so much that never came out. Do you think yeah. it's fair to say there were points where he was writing a song a day? Oh, Yeah. Oh, I think more than that. He was so prolific at that time. He had just so much in him that he wanted to get out. All that and more on the next installment of Prince, the story of 1999. <laughs>
The Story of 1999 is produced by The Current and supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This program was produced in collaboration with The Prince Estate and Warner Records and with their support. This story was hosted and produced by me, Andrea Swenson, produced and edited by Anna Wegel, mixed by Corey Schreppel, with script editing from Jay Gabler and production support from Brett Baldwin, Lynn Elliott, Cecilia Johnson, Jim McGuinn, David Safar, and Derek Stevens. Thanks to Trevor Guy, Michael Howe, Giancarlo Siama, and Dwayne Tudal. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Prince, The Story of 1999 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, please visit prince.com. Thank you very much. Good night.